Welcome to the latest edition of Understanding the Sins Discussed in the Torah. For this podcast, I'm going to focus on the beginning of Avodah of idolatry, as recorded in the Torah and discussed by the commentators. And we will try to explore how idolatry came into being in the world, uh, how it evolved, and what exactly it is. So let's start from the top. In the last podcast, we talked about the conflict between Cain and Hevel, and we focused on the idea that Cain was Midas Hadin, the attribute of strict judgment, of Gevura, of power, of might, of overpowering. And Hevel was the Midas of Chesed, of kindness, of expansion, and of, of not limitation, and how that played out in a conflict between the two of them, uh, that instead of working together to create a perfect balance, instead each one took his own Midas and and did not want to deal with the other Mida, with the other trait, and this created conflict, which ultimately led to Cain murdering his brother Hevel. The Torah tells us later on that Adam and Chava had a, had another child, whom they named Shes. And Rashi tells us that the name Shes is because Mimenu Hushtas Ha'ilam. From him, the entire world was um, placed, was established. And the commentators explain, on a deeper level, this idea that as we mentioned in the previous podcast, the balance between din and chesed is what enables the world to function properly. The proper balance between these two poles, the proper amount of kindness, of giving, of expansion, and the proper amount of limitation of knowing when to create boundaries and how to create those boundaries and where to create those boundaries and of overcoming oneself. The the perfect balance is what allows the world to function. And Shais was regarded as a great tzaddik, a very righteous person, and thus, through him, the world was able to be established because Shais within himself uh, was able to balance these two midas. However, after Shais comes an individual by the name of Enosh. And the Torah tells us that during the time of Enosh, the, the people in the world began to call out in the name of Hashem. What does this mean? So Rashi tells us what it means is that they began worshipping idols. And how did this come about? How did this uh, idea, shall we call it a fad, but it's not much more than a fad because it became very entrenched in society for millennia thereafter, where did this drive towards idolatry, where did this idea of, of idolatry come from? So the Rambam, Maimonides, tells us that it evolved as follows. People were aware of Hashem's presence and of Hashem's existence in the world, and what they said was they began to say to themselves and to each other, wouldn't it be proper and fitting if we not only praised and served uh, Hashem himself, but he's got servants in the world. He's got a sun, he's got a moon, he's got stars. So isn't it an honor for Hashem if we begin to uh, show um, how much we appreciate and praise and worship uh, his servants, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc., etc., etc. And so they began to worship and to praise and to bring sacrifices to the servants of Hashem. And as time went on, and as things evolved, people became more and more focused on the second tier, etc., second tier, third tier um, beings of the world, and slowly, slowly, they forgot about Hashem, and they focused solely on the worship of these other powers or beings that were created in the world. And so people worship the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on and so forth, and totally forgot about worshiping the master, the creator of 
the sun, the moon, the stars, and of the entire world, they forgot all about Hashem and focused only on worshipping these idols. Now, if we were to stop here and we were to just examine this passage of the Rambam, we would come to a conclusion that really idolatry was the result of what can be described as either a tragic error or perhaps a, a, a noble idea gone awry in that people thought it's a good idea, we'll show honor to Hashem by worshipping His servants, by praising and honoring His servants, by praying to His servants, the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on, but things got out of hand, things evolved um, or devolved and went down in the wrong direction, uh, down the line, and eventually led to a world focused very much on idolatry and virtually no focus on Hashem Himself. However, this is not the case. Rabbi Rabbi Gedali Ashur, uh, one of the great Torah leaders from the past generation, passed away in the late 1970s, known as the first American Gadol, the first, uh, uh, he was labeled as the very first great Torah scholar to be raised in America and to grow up in America. Uh, in his uh, great work, in his thoughts on the parsha, Ari Gedal Yahu, he makes the following point. He says that if people began praising, worshiping, praying to these other uh, these other um, deities, whom they made into deities, into gods, eventually, it didn't just start off as an innocent um, pursuit of trying to show honor to Hashem by worshiping His servants. But rather, deep down, there must have been a drive to move away from God Himself. In other words, people began to say, look, it's very hard to connect to Hashem, it's not so easy to get to that level of connecting directly to Hashem. So, um, instead, let's move away from Hashem and we will worship His servants instead. And so the process really began with a, with a if not um, fully conscious, but a subconscious desire to back away from connection to God Himself in favor of the easier connection to the lower tier powers of the world instead of connecting to the ultimate creator and power and the only, ultimately the only source of power in creation to Hashem Himself. And so the Rambam's description, while sounding very logical, in fact is predicated on less than ideal motives, and that is that it's easier to connect to these servants than to connect to Hashem Himself. If you've ever had the experience of having a boss or a principal or someone very high up whom you found it very difficult and very fear, uh, fearsome, uh, awe-inspiring to talk to, and perhaps you decided that it's easier to go to his secretary or to a second-in-command and talk to them. They're easier to approach, and you go through them to connect to the person at the top of the chain. Uh, so you've experienced this idea. And while sometimes this approach may be appropriate in the office, in school, in life, and so on and so forth, and on the contrary, sometimes it's the best way to go, because it's not always a good idea to go to the very top, and sometimes you're better off going through people lower down on the chain of command. However, in the world, Hashem has commanded us as the Jewish people that it is forbidden to go to any of the other powers and any of the other beings, entities that He put into creation, even if you are using those entities to connect to Hashem. It's strictly forbidden. We have to go to Hashem Himself, and Hashem wants us to approach Him directly, and even though it is awe-inspiring and fearsome, and it's an enormous task and responsibility to approach Hashem Himself, nonetheless we are enjoined, we are commanded to go straight to Hashem. But the generation of Enosh chose not to go that route, and instead to start to back away from Hashem. Now, once we've established how Avodah Zarah evolved, we need to understand something else, and that is, it's very clear from many, many sources 
that once upon a time there was an enormous drive towards Avodazara, towards idolatry. Today, by and large, people don't really have that drive to go and bow down to sticks and stones or to rocks or to moons or suns or stars or anything like that. Uh, humans have drives for other things that are become quite destructive. And in fact, the Talmud talks about the two major drives that existed within the human psyche. Um, following the destruction of the first temple at the dawn of the beginning of the second temple, the Talmud tells us that the Anshek Nesas Hagdoila, the men of the great assembly, prayed to Hashem to remove the Yetzir Hara, the inclination for idolatry from the human psyche. And the Talmud tells us that it emerged like a fiery lion from the Kaidish HaKadoshim, from the Holy of Holies, and that was the Yetzir Hara, that was the drive, the evil inclination specifically for idolatry was removed from the human psyche. And the Talmud makes clear that even though there is a great deal of reward uh, in store for those who are able to overcome this Yetzir Hara, this drive, however, the Anshek Nesas Hagdaila, the Torah leaders of that time, the men of the Great Assembly, decided that it just was not worth it because of the enormous destruction and damage that had been wrought through the drive for idolatry, the potential for the reward and the spiritual growth and gains that could be achieved with it was just not worth it, and so they removed it. And the Talmud continues and tells us that they also prayed to have the Yetzirah, the drive uh, for sexual, um, sexual re- relations and all that comes with it, removed from the human psyche as well. And in fact, that came to pass, and it was removed, from humanity, and the problem was that the world kind of shut down because no one, no one was interested, not people, not animals, nobody, uh, in re- reproducing anymore, which would bring the world to a grinding halt. And in fact, it goes so far, says the Talmud, that, that chickens stopped laying eggs. And of course, the question is, uh, egg laying is seemingly not, not dependent on this drive. And the Talmud says that this drive, this evil in inclination that is present within the psyche of all living things, uh, also causes the body to heat up, and when that was removed from from not only the human psyche, but from the world at large, uh, that heat was missing, and so even eggs cannot be laid, because they require that heat within the body. Okay, and so um, the Talmud concludes that they prayed for that drive to be restored, the drive what we call Arias, uh, and... Uh, for the the the, uh, the drive for relationships between uh, males and females that was restored. However, they did succeed in removing the drive for having incestuous relationships. That drive was successfully removed from the human psyche. However, the general drive is uh, still alive and well within humanity and the world at large today. And uh, all of the world still struggles with it, and it still wreaks quite a bit of havoc, but it is necessary for the functioning of the world. So, if we want to relate to what the drive for Avodah once was, in a sense, if we can relate to the other drives that are within the human psyche that can't be necessarily logically explained, except that that's just how we are and how we are wired, we can start to appreciate that there was once a drive for idolatry, uh, which, though no longer present, was how people were wired back in those times. But on a deeper level, we still need to understand what exactly is, is is the nature of this drive? What does one gain from bowing down to a statue of stone or wood or the sun or so on and so forth? What is it about? So, I would like to share with you an approach from the Nefesh Chaim, which is the famous work of the great Rabbi Chaim of Velazhin, the founder of the of the Velazhin Yeshiva. Uh, in his work, Nefesh Chaim, he explains to us what exactly is going on with idolatry on a deeper level. And he says that idolatry is not simply a person bowing down 
to a statue of wood or of stone or of gold and so on and so forth, but rather the idea is that a person is indeed connecting to a spiritual entity, to a spiritual being. And when we talk about bowing down, be it to a statue, be it to the sun or the moon or the stars, the person is not just bowing down to an inanimate object of a sun or a stone statue or so on, but rather the person is worshipping, is connecting with the spirit, with a spiritual reality that is present in the sun, in the moon, or perhaps through the statue. And in fact, there are um, um, idolatrous religions in the world today where they will tell you that if you bow down or place incense in front of a statue or bow down to the statue or pray to the statue, that you're not actually worshipping the statue. The statue is a, is a point of focus for worshipping a spiritual entity and that spiritual entity, that power is focused through the statue. And says the Nefesh Chaim, this is what's going on when we talk about idolatry. Idolatry is not like I said, merely bowing down to a stone statue or the sun, but rather it's connecting to the spiritual entity that is channeled through that sun. The sun itself has a spiritual a spiritual re- reality behind it. People worship angels, or for that matter, Satan, and so on and so forth. And these are powers and beings that God put into creation, and they have certain jobs, and they have abilities to do things. And Hashem also put into creation a reality that a person can go to these, we'll call them second, third, fourth tier, whatever you'd like, powers in creation, and if a person knows which buttons to push, a person can get certain things from these deities. So just as an example, if you are familiar with, let's just say, the rain god, and you know that a certain type of sacrifice offered to the rain god will uh, bring forth rain, well then, if you need rain, just bring the right sacrifice, you've pushed the right buttons, Hashem put a reality into creation that if you push the right buttons, you bring the right sacrifice to the rain god, the rain god will uh, give you rain, so then you have rain. And look at that, I have the rain I need, and I didn't have to go to the very top, to Hashem, which is much harder, because I have to be spiritually perfect, or at least work on spiritually perfecting myself, to really be able to connect to Hashem, and to approach Him properly in a proper way. Instead, I could just live my life as I see fit, and whenever I need rain, I'll just bring a few sacrifices to the rain god, push the right buttons, and boom, I have rain. You want kids? Just go to the god of for, for fertility. You need wheat to grow? Go to the god of wheat, and so on and so forth. And that is where you'll be able to get whatever you need while being able to live your life as you see fit. Where does the process start? The process starts because, as we said earlier, from Rabbi Gedali Ashur, that people began to back away from Hashem. Their drive to begin worshipping these servants, noble as it may have seemed, seemed, despite their very uh, seemingly good intentions, however, uh, the road is paved with good intentions towards a very not positive place. And the idea over here is that subconsciously they really wanted to move away from Hashem. And so they found it easier to worship His servants, and over time, as we said from the Rambam, they forgot all about Hashem, and they focused only on those servants. Uh, so whenever we hear about any sort of idol, uh, really what we are talking about is not just bowing down to a piece of wood or a stone statue or a sun or a moon or so on, but rather using that as a means of connection to the spiritual power that is behind it. Now you're probably wondering, well, how do we have humans making themselves into gods, which we find all over the Torah uh, and in many passages in the Talmud. For example, Pharaoh declared himself a god, and, um, and in many cultures, uh, kings would often um, de- de- declare themselves as gods, as deities, 
or as a son of a deity, or whatever it is. How does that happen? How does that work? According to this approach, well, the idea is, says Rav Chaim of Velazhen, the idea is that that individual is saying, you connect to me, and you are connecting to a, a very powerful spiritual source through me. So you'll be able to connect to a great spiritual source by connecting to me. You're basically pinning your hopes and your world and your life on my fortunes. So if you have a king, and that king comes and says, look, Everything revolves around me. Everything that comes here comes through me. So if you want to get all the goods, you have to connect to me, and I'm the pipeline. Well, then people are going to start worshipping that individual. And that is how people uh, make themselves into gods and into and into deities. And it may even work, because as we said, it's possible indeed that a person in a position of power is indeed able to serve as that pipeline of bringing down goodness to the world from higher worlds, and the people are indeed able to get what they need through this individual, and they are indeed successful. So, the same way a person could push the right buttons to get rain from, from the rain god, well, if whenever Pharaoh goes down to the Nile, the Nile rises to his feet, as our sages tell us, that Yaakov, in last week's Parsha, he blessed Pharaoh. In Parsha's Va- Vayigash, Yaakov blessed Pharaoh that the Nile should rise whenever he comes close. Well, hey, Pharaoh now is a great guy to be hooked up with because he is the one who's bringing the water out to Egypt. The Nile is the source of water. It's the source of life for Egypt. Guess who's basically in charge of the Nile? Pyro himself. He's a great guy to be connected with. He's the one who's bringing life. If you want life, connect to him. This is all wonderful. And so here we have a very basic idea and a very basic reason why people would want to worship idols and that is because they get what they want without having to go all the way to the top, all the way to Hashem. That's a pretty big temptation. But it still doesn't fully explain the drive. And so, in terms of a drive, we just need to take um, this idea a step further and say as follows. People have a drive to connect to something greater than themselves. This is true in the world today as well. People are always looking for something to connect to that's bigger than themselves. People are willing to give up their lives for things that are bigger than themselves. You see this all, all the time throughout world history. Well, once upon a time, that drive expressed itself in a desire to connect to a higher world and a higher realm. Now again, ultimately, that higher world and that higher realm is God Himself, is Hashem Himself. But, that's hard, as we said. That's not so easy. It takes a lot of work. You've got to be, uh, you've got to work in, on, on perfecting yourself, on perfecting your character traits, on doing the mitzvos, and so on and so forth, if you want to be able to fully connect with Hashem. But I have this drive, and I'm just not willing to put in the work. Hey, why bother with God when you could go to someone under Him, to other powers in the world, to the rain god, to the sun god, to the moon god, to Pharaoh, to whatever you want, and you'll be able to connect to a very great spiritual power and be part of that spiritual power without having to put in all the work and all of the effort. That is a lot more bang for your buck, isn't it? And so that is where people get this drive, this enormous Yetzir Hara, um, to connect, and they, instead of focusing it towards Hashem, because that's a lot of work, instead, they choose the idols, and they have this enormous drive to connect to something spiritual. It's very hard to do it in a pure in a pure fashion. Instead, it gets corrupted, and they use it to worship idols. And it works. They get what they need. The rain comes when they worship the rain god, and so on and so forth. And so, therefore, um, I, idolatry basically takes over the entire world. Now, there's a very important additional piece we have to add on to this whole conversation. And that is that when the Torah talks about idols, it often refers to them as Elohim, usually Elohim, Acherim, 
other gods. And the term Elohim, we would think, is reserved for Hashem himself. In fact, we say Elohim when we talk about Hashem. And the Nefesh Chaim explains this idea that the term Elohim means someone who has a great deal of power. Someone who, to, who, in whom is invested or in whom is placed all of the power that is referred to in that term. And so, when we say Hashem is Elokei Ho Elohim, Hashem is the ultimate God of all gods. We're not saying that there are other gods, so to speak, in the world, and Hashem is the top chief God. No. Because as we declare every day in Shema, Hashem is one. There are no other really gods or powers in the world. So what does it mean? So, says the Nevesh Achayim, what it means is as follows. Once we understand that the term Elohim means someone who has a lot of powers, who has the powers, then we understand that when Hashem created the world, He placed the powers over many things within certain spiritual entities or beings. They might be angels. They might be the, the spiritual backing or the spiritual source or basis for the sun, the moon, the rain, and so on and so forth. They might even be people who have powers. We find in the Torah that judges are referred to as Elohim because judges have a great deal of power in deciding in society who is guilty, who is innocent, who is right, and who is wrong. And so you find the term Elohim used in many places, not in the context of of Hashem himself, and not even in the context of a of an idol of a of another another deity, but rather in the context of people who have a lot of power over other people or or over other things. And so says the Nevishachaim that these powers in creation that people worship are referred to as Elohim because they do indeed have powers. However, however, these powers are not their own, but rather they are given to them by Hashem. These deities, these powers, these things, uh, be they animate or in, inanimate, be they people, animals, celestial bodies, and so on and so forth, their power is not um, independently created on their own, but rather it comes from Hashem. And therefore we have the idea always that we always say that these gods are false gods. And we say they cannot talk, they cannot speak, they cannot hear, and so on and so forth. But based on what we just discussed, it seems like they do have abilities. They can indeed hear or see or speak and give you the rain you need, give you the child you need, give you the, the food you need, and so on and so forth. But the answer is, you're right, they can do that. But what what the Torah and what King David, when he talks about how these idols, these these deities cannot do anything, what he means to say is, it's not on their own. They're not independent entities that function on their own, but rather they are dependent on Hashem himself. And the point King David is making is that what people tend to do is, they lose sight of where all this power is coming from. It's coming from Hashem. And they say, look, I need to worship this power over here in creation, because uh, that's how I get rain, that's how I get health, that's how I get children or food or sustenance, and so on and so forth. But you have to stop and say, can this thing see on its own? Can it hear on its own? Can it speak on its own? Can it give you food or children or health or happiness on its own? No. It only has it because of Hashem. And so it's very foolish at the end of the day to go to this second tier, third tier, fourth tier power when in fact, all of it is coming from the very top, from Hashem. You ought to go straight to Hashem. He is ultimately the one calling the shots. He is the one who is giving it out. With this, we can understand a fascinating passage in the Talmud, which says that one who um, refuses to give charity is akin to having worshipped idols. What does not giving charity have to do with worshipping idols? Says Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, Zatzal, may Hashem avenge his blood. He was murdered in 1941 by the, the Ukrainian collaborators of the Nazis. And he says as follows, he says that a person who is loath to part with his money, what's the reason behind it? Why are people scared to part with their money? 
because they think if they have money, then they can live a good life. Then they'll be able to get what they need. Money provides security. It provides happiness. It provides my needs and so on and so forth. Essentially, the person is tying his success in life to his money. Isn't that the truth? Don't people tie their success in life to how much money they have? So essentially, what I'm doing is I'm worshipping, in a sense, my money. I'm looking to my money to provide for me. Now, it's true. Money may provide some of these things. But at the end of the day, ultimately, who's the ultimate source of whatever I have in life? Be it happiness, health, food, sustenance, children, etc., etc. It's Hashem. By When Hashem says, I want you to part with your money, and a person fails to do so, what he's essentially saying is, I am not willing to rely on Hashem, rather I am relying upon my money. Well then, you've just switched out money for Hashem. You've backed away from Hashem, and you are now, in a sense, worshipping, you are relying on your money for your success in life. That is no different than worshipping an idol and making the exact same error. And so, in concluding, we started off with the generation of Enosh, and so we started with Chase, and Chase being the person who creates a balance between din and chesed, between strict judgment and kindness, but the world still manages to spin off course with the generation of Enosh as they begin to back away from Hashem in a world that, yes, now has some degree of balance between um, din and chesed, between kindness and strict justice, but they begin to back away from Hashem and to focus on other means of getting what they need in the world. And the and the Talmud tells us, Chazal tell us, that Hashem punished these people, and He flooded one-third of the world. That is what it says, one-third of the world was flooded and destroyed because of their sins of idolatry, and with that note, we will leave off over here in the history and in this conversation of what's going on in the world at this point, and we will continue, God willing, with the Dar Hamabu with the generation of the flood and what they saw and what they decided to do and where they went wrong because this generation that we have discussed now is known as the Dar Enosh, the generation of Enosh and that of mankind beginning to worship idols. When we arrive at the Dar Hamabu at the generation of the flood, we need to understand what they saw in terms of where the, the generation of Enosh went wrong, what they tried to do to avoid those errors, and where they went horribly wrong. And with that, we will have you'll have to wait for the next podcast when we will talk about what their mistake was. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and have a great day.